When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, we have a preview of the year in Congress and the reasons why 2019 will be the worst year of Donald Trump's life. Also, the L.A. teacher strike was settled on Tuesday. Among other things, it was a battle over the future of the Democratic Party. Will it embrace austerity and the steady erosion of social services, or will it fund the progressive agenda? Sarah Jaffe will report. And later in the show, Americans have always struggled over the place of black people in America, starting at the beginning with the Constitution. Was the Constitution a pro-slavery document? We'll ask Sean Wilentz. His new book is No Property in Man. But first, Trump in 2019. Some presidents have really bad years. For Nixon, it was 1974, the Watergate year, which ended, of course, with his resignation. For Clinton, it was 98, the Monica year, which culminated with an impeachment trial in the Senate in 1999. He won that vote easily and came out more popular than ever before. It looks like 2019 will be the worst year of Donald Trump's life. For comment on what awaits Trump in 2019, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and his most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It is a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Of course, in a few months, Robert Mueller will issue his report on Russiagate, but that's only the beginning. There will also be three or four major House committee investigations. Let's talk about those. Let's start with the House Committee on Oversight. It's chaired by Elijah Cummings. He's a man from Baltimore, the son of two former sharecroppers. He's going to be investigating whether Trump has profited from the presidency. He's also going to look at the hush payments made to the women Trump had sex with. Tell us about Elijah Cummings' investigations and the Oversight Committee. Elijah Cummings is one of the most remarkable people in Congress. And because our national media doesn't tend to cover Congress very well or very seriously, uh, most people don't know about Cummings. But the important thing to understand is he has been there for a long time doing very important work. And there won't be a lot of showboating. It will be very serious and very smart. And I think it's really important to get into violations of the Emoluments Clause, and, and I think that by the end of this year and a half, two-year period, 
Americans are going to really understand the emoluments clause, which is something they didn't know much about before. <laughs> yes. And it will be because of the work of this committee. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, no matter what happens with the Mueller report, my sense is that the ideas, the information, the insights, uh, the revelations that come out of uh, the Oversight Committee are going to inform uh, an understanding of President Trump that will cause a, a tremendous number of people to, even beyond the usual suspects, to fully recognize that his administration has in many ways been about a looting of uh, the U.S. Treasury. And the second House committee that's going to be investigating Trump is the Intelligence Committee. It's headed now by Adam Schiff of Los Angeles. We see him on in MSNBC almost every night. He's going to examine whether Russia has financial leverage over the president through its investments in Trump's uh, hotel empire. Of course, that's the famous red line that Trump said investigators should not uh, cross. How do you think that's going to go? Well, they should cross it, and, and Adam Schiff is quite prepared to cross. You need a strong uh, kind of out front uh, to the cameras chairman like Schiff uh, who is willing to push back and is ready to cross that line where necessary. This is a hard assignment in a sense because it will intersect, we, we assume, with the Mueller uh, inquiry and because so much of the push and pull as regards the Mueller inquiry will be about the report, what it says, what it includes, how much is revealed, in what form it is revealed, and what actions are taken on the basis of that report. Schiff operates with you know some boundaries and some direction that may actually make this a, a much more focused committee than some of the others, which where I think they may go in a number of directions. He will be focused not just on Trump. I will bet you this committee ends up spending a lot of time on Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross. Uh-huh. Uh, because Wilbur Ross, is, he's really gotten away with an awful lot for a very long time. He's the Secretary of Commerce of the United States. He's in an incredibly powerful position with very little scrutiny. But the fact is, Wilbur Ross is the guy who repeatedly helped Donald Trump get out of bankruptcy when Donald Trump was a failed businessman. And, you know, the fact that Ross is there, that Ross had so many involvements with a lot of the European and uh, potentially the Russian players that intersect with all these, these cases. I think, frankly, I find it hard to imagine that you won't see Wilbur Ross called to testify before this committee. And uh, ultimately I find it hard to imagine that you won't see Wilbur Ross out of government, frankly, either counted out in shame or impeached. Well, one of the really high-profile people who's also going to be investigating Trump in the House is Maxine Waters, who's the new chair of the House Financial Services Committee. They have the power to look at Trump's banking and its connections to Russia. How do you think that's going to go? I, You know, come on. This is like the best, best <laughs> deal ever, right? <laughs> um, I think she's going to be an incredibly aggressive member. Uh, And remember one thing also, Maxine Waters is quite close to Nancy Pelosi. And so uh, I think Waters will have a a good deal of support as as she uh, uses this committee to be an an aggressive investigator of the president. And and I would also suggest one other thing too. No matter what you think about the, the Russia stuff and all the things that will come out of the Mueller inquiry there, it is important to understand 
that this banking stuff goes even further than that. Yeah. You know, there are just a tremendous number of scandals it, it, that I would suggest extend from Trump and his interactions with banks around the world. And, uh, and so for Maxine Waters, the, the challenge, I think, is to bring in the whole scope of that. If you do, I think you have the potential to build out arguments for accountability on Trump that extend far beyond where a lot of the discussions have gone so far. Last but definitely not least, the House Judiciary Committee, now headed by Jerry Nadler of uh, Manhattan's Upper West Side, along with Wall Street and parts of Brooklyn. Of course, that's the biggest one. Uh, Fill us in on uh, what the House Judiciary Committee is going to be doing for the next few months. Well, look, Jerry Nadler started doing the the work uh, long ago. What Nadler has is a staff that is ready to go at this. And he himself is very ready to go at this. Remember, for many, many years, this is the guy who was kind of the key Democrat on the Constitution subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee. He knows these issues of presidential accountability. He knows these issues of uh, impeachment, if if that's where it gets to, quite frankly. And beyond that, he is an incredibly morally guided, morally driven member of Congress. If indeed you get to an impeachment inquiry, and remember, that's still a a good ways off, but if indeed you get there, um, he is someone who is incredibly capable of reproducing uh, sort of a Peter Rodino role. And if you remember Peter Rodino, who was chairman of judiciary back during the Watergate years, Rodino's genius was that in in a meticulous way, he built the case for accountability, which then extended to a discussion of impeachment itself. And he always along the way brought, brought some Republicans, a handful, obviously, as well as the American people along. Jerry Nadler is capable of that. He has been given an incredibly challenging duty as, as chairman of judiciary at this point. No matter where the Mueller inquiry goes, no matter where all of these other challenges goes, he is capable, I would argue, of you know, leading the committee toward a very bold result. And one final thing, too, which I think is, is perhaps the greatest compliment to him, as he does this, because of his own nature and because of, frankly, his district, which is a very progressive district, he won't take his eye off a host of other issues. Uh, for instance, on any given week while he's talking about accountability for the president, he is also talking about immigrant rights, civil rights, civil liberties. And remember, this Judiciary Committee has an immense reach. And uh, I think you will see him empowering subcommittee chairs, also doing a lot of the work himself to make sure that even as you seek to hold the president to account, you don't lose sight of the many, many civil liberties and civil rights issues that are also very much in play in this moment. We started out by referring to two previous presidents who had really bad years. Nixon's ended with his leaving office. Clinton's ended with his easily winning an impeachment trial in the Senate and going on to become more popular than ever. Where do you think Trump will be at the end of 2019? Oh, good heavens, my friend. Anybody who who predicts where Donald Trump is going to end up, where things are going to end up, uh, you know, often ends up 
being glad that predictions are not remembered. Trump will seek to politicize whatever comes at him. Uh, he will seek to game it. Uh, he will seek to take advantage of you know any any opportunity. Uh, my sense, though, is that he will be dramatically weakened. Um, and whether he faces an accountability moment this year, a full-on accountability moment, or whether the wrangling continues and he's protected by a Republican Senate, uh, as well as potentially Republicans in the House to some extent, um, I think he ends up so much weaker at the end of the year that there really are questions about whether he will run for re-election if he's still in office. Um, and I, I can only close off by, I, and I, I promise you I'll never do this again to you, but I'll just, I just recount, um, this is what happened. You know, Donald Trump is right now, he's just passing the uh, two-year anniversary of his presidency. This is what happened in the 72 hours before he hit that moment. The damage done by the longest shutdown in the history of the Republic is extended as 800,000 federal workers went without pay, lined up at soup kitchens, and registered their children for free or low-cost school meals. The new Speaker of the House proposed delaying the State of the Union address until the crisis that the president had said he was proud to provoke could be resolved. The president responded to this highlighting of the seriousness of the standoff, not by negotiating, but by effectively canceling a visit to U.S. troops in Afghanistan by the speaker and members of Congress. Trump's nominee for attorney general said he couldn't rule out journaling reporters for doing their jobs. Senators raced to enact bipartisan legislation to prevent Trump from unilaterally pulling the United States out of NATO. Trump's current lawyer abandoned 18 months of claims that there was no collusion before his boss's 2016 campaign, between his two th bosses' 2016 campaign, and the Russians unleashing a new wave of what political referred to as Team Trump infighting. The president's former lawyer acknowledged that, quote, at the direction of and for the sole benefit of Donald Trump, he had conspired to rig online poll numbers in Trump's favor before the 2016 election, and a media frenzy uh, exploded around reports, some of them challenged, about the prospect that the president had instructed that same lawyer to lie to Congress. That's the last three days of the first three weeks of 2019. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. It was great to be with you. Next up, the L.A. teacher strike comes to an end. For comment and analysis, we turn to Sarah Jaffe. She describes herself as a labor journalist before it was cool. She's a fellow at the Type Media Center. That's the new name for the Nation Institute. Her work has appeared in the American Prospect, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and the Nation. And she's also co-host of the Descent Magazine podcast, Belabored. And she's the author of the book, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. Sarah Jaffe, welcome. Thank you for having me. So we had more than 30,000 teachers on strike here in L.A. for six days in a district with more than half a million students, most of them poor and Latino. We're taping this on Tuesday at midday in L.A. The mayor this morning announced a negotiated contract settlement. The teachers are voting today. The union expects they will vote in favor of the proposal and will be back in classrooms on Wednesday. The settlement includes higher pay, but also 
smaller class size, more support staff, more nurses, librarians, and counselors, also more regulation of charter schools, less standardized testing, more green space, more funding from the state, way beyond the usual agreement on pay and benefits. The L.A. school district is the largest employer in the city, so when their workers go on strike, it's a very big deal for the students and their families, of course, for the teachers, of course, but also for the whole city and really for the Democratic Party everywhere in the United States. You were out on the picket lines here last week in L.A., talking to teachers and parents, what did they say the strike was about? I think for teachers and for parents in Los Angeles, the strike was about, you know, it's become almost a a cliche to say the schools our students deserve, thanks to the Chicago teachers making that such a a regular slogan. But it's true. When you talk to parents who are saying, my kid goes to school and there's 40 students in his class, and how is he supposed to get any attention from his teacher when there's 40 students in this class? When I'm talking to students who are getting organized because they're being stopped and frisked in the schools. When you're talking to teachers who have seen their funding cut back, they have a nurse once a week. I talked to a librarian who for a little while had to travel to a different school basically every day of the week because the schools only had a librarian one day a week. When you talk to people about things like this, you get a real picture of what's been done to public education and what this union would like to reverse. And this is a battle not just for better schools in Los Angeles, it's also a battle over the future of the Democratic Party. This whole strike had, you know, it had nothing to do with the Republicans or with Trump. It's really about whether the Democrats, who of course have complete control in Los Angeles and California, will support austerity and the steady erosion of public services, or whether the Democrats will support a more progressive and better funded government. Let's Uh talk about that for a minute. Yeah, it was very interesting to me that uh, Cory Booker, who never met a charter school or a hedge fund that he didn't like, was at a charter school event in New Orleans while the Los Angeles teachers were on strike. And this comes after a week where, like, the Democratic Party actually, the DNC put out a statement on the first day of the strike saying they stand with teachers. Kamala Harris put out um, some videos saying she supported the teachers. Bernie Sanders, it's no surprise, sent out an email to his email list saying support the teachers. So there is a movement in that direction, but there are still the Cory Bookers of this world. And, you know, it's important to note that the Los Angeles school board who hired this Wall Streeter, Austin Butner, to run the school district, they are all theoretically Democrats. And so when you look at this and when you look at California in particular, right, your state is the biggest economy in the U.S., the fifth biggest economy in the world if it was its own country, and it is 43rd in per-student funding. That's not a, an accident. It's not a something that just sort of, oops, it happened. These are conscious decisions that were made to defund the schools. It goes back in part to Prop 13, but it also, it's a decision that's been made over and over again in these cities that are run by Democrats. And let's talk about the union. It's called United Teachers Los Angeles, UTLA. The vote before the strike in favor of the strike was 98%, pretty amazing. And the support from parents and and communities for the striking teachers was even more amazing. How did the union do Mm -hmm. this? 
So this union, the caucus that runs this union came in in 2014 and they came in ready to prepare for something like this. They came in instituting an organizing department, a parent community department, a research department and a political department, none of which the union had before in order to really root themselves in community and to rethink what a union could be. There's been a reform movement at work within teachers unions for at least a decade now. The first time most Americans got a glimpse of that was in Chicago in 2012, where, again, they introduced the slogan, the schools our students deserve. Also, our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. You know, a lot of the time when unions say they want a community partnership, what they mean is they want some people to come along to a press conference. In this case, they're really having meetings around a table. There's um, a blanket organization called Reclaim LA Schools that involves students, parents, and teachers and community groups. And all of this is to say that, like, they're getting demands from the parents and the students and incorporating those into their bargaining demands. So it's not just top-down. It's not just the teachers saying, we want parents to support us. It's they're saying to parents and students, what do you need from these schools and how can we bring that to the bargaining table? So when you get things like them talking about police in schools, when they're talking about green space, when they're talking about ethnic studies programs, they're talking about this because this is what they're hearing from parents and students that the parents and students value. And we need to talk about charter schools. LA has more students in charter schools than any other uh, big city. The billionaires, who are Democrats, as we have said, have put a huge amount of money into electing a pro-charter school board. They elected, as you said, a pro-charter superintendent of schools. We are told, we don't know the details of the settlement here, but that the settlement includes some kind of new restrictions on charter school expansion. Do you think this could be a a turning point for L.A. and nationally in the charter school movement? I don't know if the charter school regulations can explicitly go in this contract. I think it's more of opening space for that kind of a discussion. But this is certainly one of the big things that every teacher I spoke to wanted to talk about in terms of this fight, right? They are frustrated with the resources that are going to charters. And I think that the school board and the superintendent certainly got a sense from this fight that the parents and the students and the teachers in Los Angeles are on the side of fully funding the existing public schools, not turning them into private charters. One of the reasons that the union succeeded in this strike was that the picket lines were so successful and the demonstrations, especially downtown, were so huge. I know you spent a lot of time out here Uh, visiting the picket lines. How did these picket lines compare with other picket lines you've known? (laughs) I mean, these were, well, first of all, you know, you were out in LA. It was raining all week. Yeah. So I'm back here in New York where it was 14 degrees when I landed. So I'm, I'm actually, I would love to be back in 55 degrees and raining right now. But it was really impressive to see how many people came out in the pouring rain every day. People were out in spite of the rain, that people were there wearing ponchos and rain boots and singing and dancing in the rain. But so Monday's rally, I think the number was like 45,000 people. And Friday's was supposed to be 60,000 people. So like when you end the week stronger than you began, that's a big deal. But it's also, you know, it made everybody look at the weather and the week and say, huh, next week's going to be nice out again. Do we want to have another week full of big, intense exciting electric picket lines in front of our schools, or do we want to give the teachers what they want? You write in the nation that the union's vision for public schools 
would require vast changes to the way our society has been organized. Please explain. When we talk about, and I mentioned in that piece, Margaret Thatcher's famous line about there is no such thing as society, there are individuals and there are families. We talk about that vision. That's been the overarching structuring vision for, I mean, in this country, both political parties for most of the last, most of my lifetime, really. I'm 38 years old. And that means that everything that can be privatized has been privatized or they're working on privatizing it, that everything is about sort of individual responsibility. When you think about charter schools and the the promise that charter schools make, they are essentially saying, if you can get your kid into a specific school, then your kid will have a chance and the rest of the kids who are stuck in the regular public schools are just going to have to suffer. That's that individual bootstrap mentality at work. And public schools say something different. And a union like this one says something different. They say that we should have a society that works for everyone. We should have spaces that are welcoming and open and provide for everybody. Kids should get fed. They should get cared for. They should have a nurse, a counselor, everything that they need. That should be provided on the basis of what they need, not on the basis of what they can give and what they can pay, but on the basis of what they need. And so for the teachers to fight over this, and again, for the parents and the community to be by their side in this fight, they're fighting for a society that actually provides for people. And that is something that is, we are constantly told is just crazy. We can't ask for that. You can't ask for universal health care. You can't ask for, you know, any of these things because we just can't do that. You have to pay for things. And the teachers are saying, nah, you actually, we can provide these things. We can do that. And we should do that. Do you think this will have traction not just for Los Angeles and California, but potentially across in other places across the whole country? I mean, this is already part of a movement that's ongoing. So we should, you know, look at this as part of a continuum that, you know, I always say started in Wisconsin after Scott Walker's attack on teachers. They had their first victory in Chicago with the Chicago Teachers Union strike. We've seen a bunch of unions in the interim between these two big strikes arguing for, fighting for, going to the verge of striking over And winning some impressive contracts that, again, involve fighting for public schools, pushing back on charters, winning community demands in places like St. Paul, Minnesota, in Seattle, pushing back on standardized testing. All of this has been an ongoing movement. In West Virginia, the big, you know, thing that everybody paid attention to when they went on strike last year was that they won a raise, but they also pushed back on charter schools in that same movement. So this is... Again, this is an ongoing fight. The next strikes are likely to be in Denver and then Oakland, um, both of whom are circling on or have already taken strike votes. And we're going to see them, again, paying very, very close attention to what just happened in Los Angeles. Because, again, we're, we're at a point where the political questions are being called on what kind of a society we want to live in. Not just how much should you get paid for making widgets, but as one teacher said to me, you know, our widget is a kid who has trauma. We're not just trying to, like, turn out something at the end of the day. You can't standardize or tailorize education. But what you can do is make it a big, broad fight about what the world we want to live in looks like. And that's why I think we're seeing teachers at the head of the labor movement right now. Sarah Jaffe, she wrote about the radical organizing that paved the way for the L.A. teacher strike in The Nation magazine. Sarah, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you.
Americans have always struggled over the place of black people in America, starting at the beginning with the Constitution. Was the Constitution a pro-slavery document? Was the American nation founded on the Constitution's affirmation of slaves as property? Sean Wilentz has been studying that question, and he's here with some answers. He teaches history at Princeton. He writes for the New York Times op-ed page, the New York Review, and other publications. He's the award-winning author of many books, and his new book is No Property in Man, Slavery in Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Sean, welcome. As ever, great to be here, John. Here's the argument. The Constitution's original sin when it was written in 1787 was that it had a pro-slavery heart. And of course, traces of that are still alive in our political culture today. It took a terrible civil war to change that Constitution. Briefly, what's the argument you make against all this? My point is that there's always been a struggle. We even see that in 1787 at the convention in Philadelphia. The framers of the Constitution conceded to the slaveholders a great deal in the Three-Fifths Clause, in delaying the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade, in uh, putting in a fugitive slave clause. All of these things were there. They were all concessions to the slaveholders. However, what that view missed was the presence of an anti-slavery politics even in the convention itself. And an anti-slavery politics that never did not simply fight and lose, but actually accomplish something and accomplish something that proved to be very, very important to the, uh, to the flourishing of anti-slavery politics in the 19th century and the coming of the Civil War. Historians are always interested in context, and I think we need to recall the context of America in 1787. We're talking here about anti-slavery. Anti-slavery was a very new idea in world history in 1787. Yeah, that's quite correct. I mean, since antiquity, slavery had basically been accepted. There were the Quakers at the end of the 17th century, but not until 1750 did the Quakers even say that they could not own slaves anymore. So, so anti-slavery is something that's born more or less at the same time as the American Revolution. The very first anti-slavery society in the history of the world was founded in Philadelphia in 1775, five days before the battles of Lexington and Concord. It had nothing to do with the battles of Lexington and Concord. They were mostly Quakers. But nevertheless, that was the beginning. It was a very new thing in 1787. There had been slave rebellions. The free blacks had been pressing for, for, for their freedom, for, uh, for expansion of their rights. Slaves had been uh, suing for their freedom for a while in, in, in New England. There were stirrings, to be, the, to be sure. But as a movement, as a form of politics, it was really very, very new. So in some ways... The anti-slavery delegates to the convention were carrying into the convention a kind of politics that was still experimental, that was still getting off the ground. Um, to the extent that they, what I'm struck by is by how much they succeeded, given how new and experimental it really was, rather than where they fell short. Well, and let's talk about slavery in 1787. What were the slave states in 1787? Well, I mean, in 1776, let me make this point, every state, all of the new states in the United States, all the colonies, um, were slave states. Slavery is recognized as legal in all of them. It's only in 1780 that Pennsylvania passes the first gradual emancipation law of its kind in history. And then five states in all, and then the state to be of Vermont, get rid of slavery eventually, by 1787. Slave states, well, Del from Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. 
We think of the cotton plantations. We're thinking about a slavery that was going to be there at the time of the Civil War. But that was a very different slave economy, if you will. It was a, it was a slave economy that was based on a different staple crop, which was cotton. At the end of the 18th century, tobacco market was glutted. The world tobacco market was glutted. It was not a, a, a wise, smart proposition to get involved in tobacco production. Um, there were only so many pipes in Europe. I mean, you know, the things could not continue the way they were. So it was widely thought, especially in the Upper South, um, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, that slavery was a system that was kind of on its, on its way out and eventually was going to be supplanted by something else. They had many questions of what you were going to do with all of those slaves, how blacks and whites might get along. All of that was there, but economically it seemed to be not the wave of the future. That was not true in South Carolina and Georgia. There, where right, there were much more specialized crops, a very special kind of cotton was grown in, in, on, on the, you know, the Atlantic seaboard, there slavery was, was prospering. And they were holding on to their slaves and their, their right to ha have slaves um, very tenaciously, much more than the Virginians. This is all going to be changed dramatically in the 1790s after the Constitutional Convention with the invention of the cotton gin and the rise of the cotton economy, which makes the slavery that we know, which creates the slavery that we know, um, but it's a very different kind of economy. So the politics makes the politics different. If you're in a situation where even many slaveholders think that slavery is kind of not such a great proposition economically, forget the morality and the enlightenment part of it, but just, you're not, it's not the wave of the future economically. That's a very different situation than you're going to have by the 1830s and 1840s, where cotton is the most valuable agricultural commodity in the world. It's the, you know, it's OPEC, uh, right? It's, 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 it's the, you know, the, the Southerners are building not only the strongest, but the richest slave society on earth, maybe indeed in world history. But that's a different moment in the history of American slavery than the one that we're talking about back in 1787. So the people who have been arguing that the Constitution is a, has a pro-slavery heart make the argument that the Constitution allows slavery to continue. It accepts the existence of slavery. Isn't that granting it legitimacy? Isn't that making it part of the foundation of the United States? No, it's not. And the reason it's not is because the Constitution was not devised to set up property laws for the entire country. Why were the framers in Philadelphia? They were there to establish a new government, more powerful central government than, than had existed under the Articles of Confederation. They were not there to mess around with the property laws of the individual states. Now, slavery existed as a state institution. The convention was in no um, position, the delegates to the convention were in no position to abolish slavery, to tell the southern states to get rid of slavery, they didn't have the power to do so. Had they tried to do so, they would, have, would not have been in the United States of America now. But there's a difference between tolerating slavery in state laws and legitimizing slavery in national law. By refusing to do that, and they do so very deliberately, it made possible what was going to become the, the fulcrum of anti-slavery politics in the 19th century, which is not to abolish slavery, but to contain it, to keep it from growing, from keeping it from getting any larger than it was. There were two basic ways to do that in 1787. One is to keep the Western territories 
under the jurisdiction of the federal government and not to acknowledge property in man, therefore making it impossible for slaveholders just to claim their rights in the territories. That was one way. The second way was to give this new government the authority to abolish the Atlantic slave trade. Understand, going back to what I was saying before, John, about the character of slavery at the end of the 18th century as opposed to the 19th century. By the time you get to the 1820s and 30s, slavery can expand without an Atlantic slave trade, as well it did. The domestic slave trade becomes much more important. But at the end of the 18th century, the Atlantic slave trade was still seen as crucial, certainly southern slaveholders thought it was crucial, to keeping their institution alive. Um, indeed, all of the gradual emancipation or even immediate emancipation um, um, plans from the 18th century always began with getting rid of the Atlantic slave trade. That was always thought of as the first step towards abolishing slavery. What was going to be the power of the federal government, this new federal government, vis-a-vis -vis the Atlantic slave trade? The South Carolinians, the Georgians, they didn't want the government to have any power whatsoever over that trade. They wanted to keep it the way it was. It was only a matter of state law. The northerners wanted the federal government to have complete control over the slave trade, to regulate it, but also to give it the power to abolish that slave trade. And indeed, the federal government does get the authority to abolish the Atlantic slave trade. It's quite true that the Southerners, and they're clever, they managed to get a kind of stay of execution, first to 1800 and then to 1808. And many, of, many historians have seen that Yes. as the great pro-slavery <clears throat> victory. Yes. They're missing the fact that what the really strong victory was was to give the, gov the, the federal government the power to get rid of it. The three-fifths clause. Every high school student knows the Constitution says that black, pe black people are three-fifths of a man. Yes, well, they, the, that, that slaves were going to be counted as three-fifths of a person for the, pur for the purposes of representation in the House of Representatives and in the um, um, Electoral College. It's not that they were three-fifths of a person, mind you. Had they been counted as a, as, as a full person, that's exactly what the slaveholders wanted, because they wanted war representation in Congress for the slaveholding states. So it's a, it's, it, was a, it was a compromise. Look at the wording of the three-fifths clause. Slaves are never mentioned. It was very clear what they were talking about, but they refer, refer to slaves as all other persons. They were, slaves are referred to as persons. That's big. Well, you know, this has been part of the problem, I think, with the older interpretation of slavery in the Constitution. If you refer to sl slaves as persons, persons held to service, persons held to labor, what have you, you're lumping them with other forms of bonded labor, like indentured servitude or apprentices. But this is not the same thing as making, as making the slaves property. And that's the essential difference. That is going to make, by, 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 by making slaves, by rendering slaves, by discussing slaves as persons rather than as property, then the slaveholders' claims are no longer inviolable. The fight over precisely that issue of whether the Constitution recognizes property in man is going to be at the heart of the secession crisis and why the North is so tenacious in holding on to its view, its view of the Constitution, which is to say that the Constitution does not authorize slavery. So what does that all mean today? What's the import today of your argument that the American nation is not founded on a 
pro-slavery constitutional basis? I think that too much of the time we have a very you know, dark view of American history in which there's no struggle, in which you know, the struggle emerged as, as slaves and others awoke to their, to their own um, uh, oppression, and that down the line eventually something is going to spring up that's going to challenge this racist slaveholders regime that came into existence in 1787. My argument is that there was struggle over that from the very beginning. Struggle that was rooted in the, in the um, uprisings of slaves and um, free blacks and resistance to, to, to racism and to slavery. Um, um, suits by free blacks to get their freedom. There was a struggle going on that, 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 that slaves and free blacks were, were, were instigating. But it implicated others, whites, who understood that, yes, this is something that we believe in. This is a violation of natural rights. We can't be fighting for liberty and freedom and equality and have slavery at the same time. That wasn't all of white America by any means. Um, there were many who were, uh, proposed exactly the opposite. There were many slaveholders who saw in the Declaration of Independence the principles that could uphold slavery. But there was a struggle. The struggle was there from the start. And if we were to understand the struggle for freedom in America, we are shortchanging it, we are misinterpreting it, if we don't see that struggle as going all the way back to the founders. The struggle was there from the start. Sean Walensa's new book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Sean, thanks so much for talking with us today. As ever, John. See you later. Finally, should NCAA football have a union? That's the question Dave Zirin asks on the Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, where sports and politics collide. New segments every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books, and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, Time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. 
or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. 